As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Grey History, episode 14, Decrees and Declarations. In the last episode, France endured a terrible anarchy. A general panic swept across the nation in the wake of the fall of the Bastille. This panic led to a series of violent peasant uprisings, as well as a municipal revolution right across the country. As the nation teetered on the brink of bankruptcy and lawlessness, something had to be done. The question was what? So without further ado, let's begin. Welcome to Grey History. Episode 14, Decrees and Declarations. How long? That had to be the question in the minds of many deputies in the National Assembly. How long could the chaos that was engulfing the countryside last? How long could the great fear which had gripped the cities and towns of France perpetuate? How long could the murder, the arson, the pillaging, the anarchy continue? Or perhaps the better question they might have been asking themselves was how long until it spreads? How long until regions that currently lay quiet like Britannia and Lorraine got sucked into this vortex of destruction? How long until currently sleepy towns slipped into lawless pandemonium? How long until the anarchy visited Paris? Or how long until it consumed Paris and the National Assembly and Versailles along with it? In fact, to ask how long until anarchy visited Paris implies that the city had been immune to disorder in the first place. And that implication is wrong. The countryside may have been the source of the news of the war between the rich and the poor. The countryside may have been the source of the news of chateaus in ruins, feudal rites in flames, millers hung from trees and pillaged monasteries. But the cobblestones of Paris had also been graced with blood. Noble blood, in fact. The great city had not been immune to the great fear. Bertier de Savigny, the intendant of Paris, and his father-in-law, Foulon, a minister, were captured by the Parisian mob on the 22nd of July. Accused of crimes against the people, including the hoarding of grain and personal enrichment at the expense of the poor, both men suffered the same fate as Delaunay. Bertier de Savigny was hung prior to being decapitated, while his father-in-law, Foulon, would have suffered the same fate had his rope not broke. The broken rope spared Foulon from being lynched, but he was decapitated nonetheless. Rumoured to have said the hungry should eat hay, Foulon's severed head did so instead, as the masses stuffed his mouth with blood-drenched straw and paraded it through the streets on the tip of a pike. Mob justice at its finest. 
These actions of the mob repulsed many in the assembly, as deadly disorder unfolded in the countryside and increasingly did so too in the streets of Paris. Some moderate deputies found themselves in an awkward position, in the same awkward position as members of the Parlements had found themselves in the year before. That is, regretting their alliance with an unpredictable and at times brute-like populace. While the chaotic events of the Bastille could partially justify Delaunay's death, these deaths were unjust ones in the eyes of many. The spontaneous execution of the Intendant of Paris and his father-in-law could not easily be explained away like Mirabeau had done with Delaunay's. Unlike Delaunay, who was beheaded while the gunpowder could still be smelt in the air on July the 14th, these men were responsible for no trap, no slaughter, no conspiracy, no treason. Suspected of it? Sure. But guilty of it? Well, that was another matter entirely. In the minds of many moderate and conservative deputies, the two men had done nothing wrong that could justify the vigilante justice or summary execution. They were guilty of being the subject of rumours, denouncements and conspiracies. And they died for it. To make matters worse, Lafayette and the National Guard had tried to intervene in these executions. Their inability to stop them, the clear impotency of the city militia, frightened many deputies who feared the capital was on the brink of uncontrolled lawlessness. The disgust of moderate and conservative deputies aside, others in the assembly came to the defence of the hungry and downtrodden. Deputy Anton Barnev proclaimed, What, then, is their blood so pure? Radical papers conceded the bloody nature of the attacks, but defended the rage of a people who had been made to live like slaves for too long. I wonder, though, if people like Barnev would have come to the defence of the children who imitated older generations. For in the streets of Paris, children now roamed with the heads of kittens stuck on sticks. Like the victims of their parents, the kittens too were robbed of a fair trial. By the start of August, it was clear something had to be done to contain the disorder gripping the country. Large swathes of the countryside were in revolt, and Paris teetered on the brink of anarchy. The question was what? Only the National Assembly could act, and its options were limited. Some preached suppression, but the army was as unreliable for the Assembly as it had been for the King. The new city militias, the National Guard, were also of limited use, especially in a time of great hunger and financial crisis. If suppression was to be the solution, it could not be suppression of the populace, but instead of the feudal system which drove it to revolt. Such was the solution of the Brenton Club. On the night of the 3rd of August, three weeks after the fall of the Bastille, a group of liberally-minded deputies who belonged to the Brenton Club met to discuss how to tackle the crisis. In fact, discuss might be the wrong word to choose. Perhaps scheme is a better one. The Brenton Club sought to ambush the National Assembly with a set of radical proposals which would end the great fear. Having been instrumental in ensuring the Third Estate refused to verify its deputies separately at the start of the Estates General, the small, democratically-minded faction knew how to drive outcomes far beyond its weight in numbers. The plan to end the chaos was simple. Get a starfighter to fire a proton torpedo into a two-metre-wide thermal exhaust port that led directly to the station's power... Oh, sorry, different rebel faction. The Brenton Club's plan was simple. The second wealthiest man in France, second only to the king, Duke d'Aiglion, would renounce his feudal rights and privileges. After a few other members of the club followed suit, 
The idea would be that other deputies would feel compelled to get on the patriotic bandwagon. The goal was to create some sort of snowball effect which would see everyone relinquishing their feudal rights and privileges. With enough privileges renounced, the peasantry's thirst for reform would be quenched and order would be restored in the provinces. With a plan devised, the Brendan Club made their move on the night of the 4th of August. On the evening of the 4th, with the assembly being far from full, the Democrats sprung their trap. As with all good schemes, it didn't go quite to plan. The Duc d'Eglion did not lead the charge. Instead, Lafayette's brother-in-law, Vicomte de Noailles, eagerly jumped to his feet and was the first to renounce feudal privileges. According to Noailles, the nation floated between the alternatives of a complete destruction of society and a government which would be admired and followed throughout Europe. To avoid complete anarchy, Noai advocated for equality in taxation, the annulment of feudal Jews subject to their redemption, and the abolishment of remnants of personal servitude such as the corvée, a bold policy manifesto to say the least. Far from being overcome with patriotic passion, however, the assembly didn't react as planned. Then again, Noai wasn't the planned instigator of this patriotic snowball either. Noai owned no lands. He was referred to jokingly as Jean without land, and his self-sacrifice was thus of, well, very little value. But when Duc de Galon did rise to renounce his claims, the assembly did take notice. He earned 100,000 livres a year from feudal Jews alone, and his self-sacrifice was thus the opposite of Noyai's. It was not of little value, it was of astronomical value. The Duke proclaimed, The people are seeking at last to shake off a yoke that has weighed on them for centuries. And, it must be admitted, this insurrection, despite being blameworthy, can find its excuse in the vexations of which they are victim. As the assembly observed, awestruck and still digesting this proposal, Leguen de Carangal sprung to his feet to follow. He proclaimed, Bring us these titles that outrage humanity itself, requiring men to be tied to a plough like draught animals. Bring us these titles that oblige men to spend the whole night beating swamps to prevent the frogs from disturbing the sleep of their pleasure-loving lords. Which of us, gentlemen, in this century of enlightenment, would not make an expiratory bonfire of these wretched parchments. With these passionate cries, the Brenton Club unleashed the domino effect they were hoping for. In fact, what happened next was something the Brenton Club could only have dreamt of. A patriotic zealotry captured the hearts and minds of the deputies present. Before long, bishops, dukes, lords, all with privileges, rushed to renounce their possessions. They did so as if these possessions were crimes against humanity, as if they were crimes against their fellow Frenchmen. Even better, members started denouncing each other's privileges. The Duc de Châtelet proposed the abolition of the church's tithe, while the Bishop of Chartres proposed abolishing the exclusive hunting rights of the nobility. Soon, the Third Estate joined the party as well. The privileges and the rights of towns, cities, provinces all sacrificed in the name of the greater good. For a revolution that in no small part started with privileged individuals and communities jealously guarding their rights, and with those same individuals and groups proclaiming that their privileges were liberties to be considered sacred and untouchable, it is ironic 
and to be frank, remarkable, that on the night of the 4th of August, they all, collectively, threw them away so easily. Cologne and Brienne had been labelled the most vile of names for suggesting just some of the sacrifices which were now volunteered almost without care. Everyone was drinking from the patriotic punch bowl. In fact, they were drinking from the patriotic punch bowl, doing lines of patriotic powder, and smoking some seriously potent patriotic plant matter. Everyone was disregarding the privileges and rights which for centuries had been jealously guarded from any and all encroachment. Now, this was all well and good. Sounds like great fun, but inevitably the fun had to end. The hangover had to kick in, the buzz had to wear off. And once the euphoria ended in the wee hours of the morning, people started to realise that perhaps they'd gone too far. So far that they began to backpedal. While the official decree started with the National Assembly abolishes the feudal system in its entirety, in reality, that was plainly untrue. In the days and weeks that followed, and as the patriotic come-down kicked in, many deputies were keen to draw a line between cruel travesties and rightfully possessed property. The former could be abolished. The latter would have to be redeemed. The National Assembly's principal lawyers, Philip Auguste Merlin de Dui and Francois Denis Tronchet, presided over the committees implementing the decrees and made purposeful efforts to ensure that abolition without compensation occurred as infrequently as possible. Historian John Dolberg Acton records the implications of classifying so many rights, which were meant to have just been abolished, as property. Once property, these rights could not be instantaneously abolished. They would have to be redeemed. They imagined that the distinction was founded on principle, but nobody ever ascertained the dividing line between that which was property and that which was abuse. The want of definitiveness enabled the landlords afterwards to attempt the recovery of much debatable ground, and involved, after long contention, the ultimate loss of all. The programme was excessively complicated and required years to be carried out. The nobles won the day with their demands to be compensated, but Dupont already spoke the menacing words, injustice has no right to subsist, and the price of injustice has no right to subsist. The immensity of the revolution, which these changes implied, was at once apparent, for it signified that liberty, which had been known only in the form of privilege, was henceforth identified with equality. For centuries, liberty had meant privilege. When the nobility protected their liberties, they were defending their privileges. When the towns and provinces protected their liberties, they were defending their privileges. After the 4th of August, according to historian John Dolberg Acton, liberty had been redefined to mean equality instead of privilege. However, privilege had been redefined as well. As the weeks passed, the reactionary elements of the assembly successfully redefined privileges and feudal rights as property in many cases. Once property, the owners could demand compensation for their relinquishment. Thus, in the end, while much may have been abolished, many feudal privileges remained in place. What was abolished included inequality in taxation, inequality before the law, venality of office and unequal access to office all examples of personal servitude, hunting rights, and the tithe. What stayed, however, were many feudal rights until they could be bought back by the peasantry, 
and that act was impractical for some and impossible for most, given the current economic conditions in the countryside. I mean, how many peasants had the spare cash lying around to buy themselves out of these obligations? Unsurprisingly, not many. Poor, penniless peasants isn't just great alliteration, it was a fact. As a result, the peasants would have to wait for more radical revolutionary governments to be truly free from their obligations. But many simply ignored them in the meantime. It's this impractical and unworkable nature of the reforms that rises the disapproval of historian Robert Johnson. Johnson criticises not only the impracticality of the Declaration, but states that, contrary to their goal of controlling chaos in the countryside, the reforms merely fueled it. Now all this was generous and admirable. It forms one of the most generous and admirable pages in history. It was even more. It was the emphatic and right declaration that privilege and class distinction was the root of all the evils of the old system and had been condemned by the French nation. But it had none of the qualities of practical statesmanship. It did not tend to decrease disorder but the contrary, and for the moment, with reform advancing so prosperously, order was the first consideration. The effects of the decrees were disastrous and intensified the bad conditions of the country. The woodlands were immediately invaded by armies of timber and fuel cutters. Game was killed off. The poor country priest found his salary gone. The gabelle itself was disregarded. Local justice came to an end. And so the government, with all its extra load, found the already failing revenue almost entirely cut off. The peasants and people of France interpreted the decrees after their fashion, refused to pay taxes and abused the surrendered privileges. The abolition of privileges is full of grey history. The reforms, especially after the classification of many privileges as property, were indeed dysfunctional. They did indeed create a range of social and economic issues, and the jury is still out as to whether they helped to calm the countryside or if it was merely the corresponding harvest which took the wind out of the peasant uprisings. Despite the problems of the decree of August the 4th, one should not downplay how important the abolition of privileges was. It, along with the Declaration of the Rights of Man at the end of the month, is one of the two most important milestones of the Revolution of 1789. According to historian Shalia Matthews, this milestone not only signals the end of the first stage of this grand revolution, but the abolition of privileges was the only enduring legacy of the revolution. To understand the significance of the night of the 4th of August, it is necessary to remember that the revolution is marked by a series of stages. The first period was not so much political as economic and social. The only attack was upon the relics of feudalism, not upon the state. The National Assembly aimed not at destroying the monarchy, but the unjust privileges under which France had so long suffered, and this first period cultivated in the voluntary renunciations made on the 4th of August. It is true hysterical legislation is always inexpedient. No small part of the confusion which beset the Assembly was due to the difficulty of administering the unforced renunciations. Sober thought, elementary parliamentary rules would have prevented some of the decrees of that night. But even when all allowance is made, this much stands true. That hostility to privilege for which Togot and Necker had stood unavailingly was converted into laws within a few hours. From that day to this, 
France has never known a revival of the accursed condition that existed under the old regime. This was the real work of the revolution. It was to make almost no permanent advance beyond the establishment of this civic equality which expressed the new social mind. Thereafter, it sought to protect the new rights. It makes little difference whether we say that the 4th of August destroyed privileges or simply declared them destroyed. In either case, it outlawed them. And with them, the old regime as a whole was outlawed. And with the eradication of feudal Jews, the whole old regime was outlawed. What a claim. Matthews argues that it was the events at the start of August which put the final nail in the coffin of the old regime. However, not all historians agree. For other historians, it was actually a declaration at the end of August that acted as the old regime's true obituary. The abolition of privileges was just the first of many great legislative achievements of the National Assembly over the summer of 1789. It was also just one of many great legislative debates. On the 26th of August, the National Assembly made another historic declaration. A declaration which would be emulated by societies around the world for centuries to come. It's this declaration which some historians believe truly represents the complete and final banishment of old regime France. The document I refer to is the Declaration of the Rights of Man. But before we examine the Declaration of the Rights of Man and the legislative debates which surround it and other key decisions, let us first cover how it came to be. To do so, it's time to introduce, more formally, the Marquis de Lafayette. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change. But it's also a story about people, populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. Hello everyone, my name is Wesley Livesey from the History of the Second World War podcast. My podcast is a mostly chronological retelling of the Second World War, and I hope you will join me on a journey through the most cataclysmic conflict in human history, as we try to answer the questions of not just what and where, but how and why. Join me on a journey not just through the famous campaigns, battles, and events, but also on a trip around the globe as we broaden the scope of Second World War history beyond the well-known battlefields of Europe and the Pacific. During weekly episodes, I seek to provide new insight for longtime students of the war, while also being a great jumping-on point for anyone seeking a deeper understanding of the Second World War. This podcast has made it to the invasion of Poland in 1939, and start listening now to find out how the world would find itself embroiled in its second worldwide conflict in just 20 years. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms, or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. 
aged 31 at the time of the revolution, Lafayette was the hero of two worlds. Tall for the era at 5 foot 9, or 175 centimetres, Lafayette didn't exactly have the look of a French superstar. He had a long nose, large eyes and a small mouth, and wasn't regarded as handsome by his contemporaries. Luckily for Lafayette, he was a military man, not a model. Lafayette was known to the public before he became the commander of the National Guard of Paris because of his deeds in the American Revolutionary War. Initially, he fought with distinction in the Continental Army, having sailed to America against the king's wishes at his own expense to fight the British, despite not even being 20 years of age. Gaining the admiration of George Washington, Lafayette's military skills saw him rapidly rise through the ranks. In early 1779, he was instrumental in securing further support for the American war effort from the French government. The king agreed to send additional troops, ships and supplies to more directly assist the Americans in their rebellion. Two years later, he helped to trap the British in Yorktown, the last major battle of the Revolutionary War. The subsequent surrender of the British propelled Lafayette to the status of hero, both at home and in the United States. Hence, his famous title, The Hero of Two Worlds. During his time across the Atlantic, Lafayette became friends with many American revolutionaries, including George Washington himself. The two would establish a father-son-like relationship, probably aided by the fact that Lafayette was an orphan. The two were so close that Lafayette would name his own son, George Washington. Yes, that's how close they were. Having returned to France, Lafayette advocated some of the ideas propagated by the American revolutionaries. He advocated religious toleration and the abolishment of slavery, and was influential in leading intellectual discussions amongst members of the liberal nobility and intelligentsia. A Republican in the closet, Lafayette still supported the existence of the king and constitutional monarchy. While some of his ideas were radical, he was not a radical himself, especially when it came to methods. For example, when the Estates General was deadlocked, Lafayette refused to break away from the Second Estate. He supported the National Assembly, but he would only join the National Assembly after the King ordered the First and Second Orders to join with the Commons. In the aftermath of the fall of the Bastille, Lafayette was elected Commander of the National Guard of Paris. This position, combined with his fame from the Revolutionary War and his prominence in intellectual circles, enabled Lafayette to become one of the most important players of the Revolution in its first few years. On the 11th of July, 1789, Lafayette submitted to the Assembly a draft Declaration of the Rights of Man. Unsurprisingly, given his close relationship with George Washington and the American Revolution, the document was heavily influenced by the founding ideas across the Atlantic. Thomas Jefferson, the American ambassador at the time, even helped Lafayette write much of the draft. But the 11th of July was not the best day to submit any document about, well, pretty much any topic. The 11th was the same day of Necker's dismissal, which of course resulted in the fall of the Bastille a few days later. Understandably, it took some time for the Assembly to focus its attention back on the Declaration. By the time it did, after the abolition of privileges, opinions on both the document's necessity and contents were varied. Just as the Parlement had split into conservative and radical factions once an Estates General was called, the National Assembly was beginning to split into factions now that its existence had been guaranteed. The spectre of royal coup was no longer present, and thus unity within the assembly began to deteriorate. Solidarity, once essential to achieving one's goals, now became a hindrance. 
Now that the National Assembly's permanence was guaranteed, so was its division. Division which began to surface as debate commenced over the need for, and the contents of, a Declaration of Rights. For Lafayette and other Democrats, the need of a Declaration of Rights was clear. According to historian Charles Hazen, Lafayette urged two chief reasons for its adoption. First, it would present the people with a clear conception of the elements of liberty which, once understanding, they would insist upon possessing. And, secondly, it would be an invaluable guide for the Assembly in its work of elaborating the Constitution. Besides Lafayette, others too backed the Declaration, but shied away from following America's example. Mirabeau disliked the American tendency to craft declarations outside the public eye, and Condorcet, a well-regarded mathematician-turned-political activist, resented Virginia's Bill of Rights for insisting the public support churches and religion. Mirabeau and Sies leaned towards more grander and loftier ideals than Lafayette, with notions of sovereignty not resting with the people as much as the concept of the general will. Other French Democrats, including more radical Vomay and Brissot, differed with Lafayette on what should be in the document, but all of them believed that such a declaration of rights should occur. The Assembly wasn't necessarily behind them. Many questioned why a declaration could not be drafted at the same time as the Constitution, to prevent contradictions, while others detested the abstract ideas of equality and liberty being considered natural rights. For some, no declaration was preferable, while others sought to emulate the English Bill of Rights, which lacked the metaphysical and abstract ideas being propagated by Sies and Mirabeau. This opposition was loosely organised behind Meunier, one of the de facto leaders amongst the Dauphine delegates and powerful, moderately conservative voices in the Assembly. Of course, Meunier would have been considered a radical when he led the Vassile Assembly in the middle of 1788, but times were changing. Leading the Assembly's more conservative moderates once more, Meunier argued that giving people loosely defined rights without defining the limitations on those rights was a recipe for trouble. The benefit of hindsight suggests he might have been on the money, but that didn't help him win the vote. On the 19th of August, Mirabeau's draft carried the day with 620 votes. Siez's draft, also full of abstract ideas, received 220 while Lafayette's draft, which was far less metaphysical, only acquired 45 votes. At the start of August, the French people had been liberated from archaic privileges. By the end of August, they had been empowered with unalienable rights. A momentous change had taken place. The first article of the Declaration proclaimed that men were born free and remain free and equal in rights. The second article proclaimed that the goal of any political association was the conservation of the natural and imprescriptible rights of man, and these rights were liberty, property, safety, and resistance against oppression. The notion that these rights were unchallengeable, natural, and distributed equally was truly radical for its time. The Declaration was not a progressive's version of perfection, however. While Mirabeau's draft succeeded, to claim that more radical members of the Assembly had won an all-encompassing victory would be inaccurate. Freedom of expression and religion were not guaranteed unreservedly, and regarding the Jewish and enslaved populations of France, no one could not help but notice the stark differences between the principles of equality and liberty for all and their current status in French society. 
women too hardly enjoyed these so-called inalienable rights, and the position of the propertyless remained in doubt. With only 17 articles, the Declaration failed to guarantee the right to petition, the right of association, or even the right to education. These shortcomings are glaring, but forgivable, considering the opposition it faced within the Assembly. Outside the Assembly, the Declaration had its additional detractors. Elements of the press that had either Catholic or Royalist sympathies condemned the document in force. More surprisingly, perhaps, even leading members of the Enlightenment circles across Europe were divided on its merits. For some, the notion of enshrining these natural rights was foolish, ill-advised, or illogical. Others feared the intangible rights would be used to usher in despotism. Less philosophical or more practical shortcomings were also criticised, even placing aside the questions of those repressed Jewish and slave populations. As historian Florence Gutier noted, these rights were contradictory in nature and laid the foundations for problems later on. If someone, for example, had the right to own property, they had the right to buy and hoard grain as well. But hoarding grain could starve the local populace, infringing on their right to liberty. How to manage these conflicting natural rights was of course not defined, since they were meant to be inalienable. How do you tackle inalienable rights, which are alienating each other? This problem would result in just the kind of conflict that the moderates feared when one defines rights without limitations. But to describe the document as so flawed that its authors should be ashamed would be an exaggeration. In my opinion, the revolutionaries deserve praise for a truly radical document which has helped to inspire democratic states for the past 200 years. I would go further than historian Edward Lowe's opinion that the Declaration may fittingly stand side by side with the American Declaration of Independence. As historian Jonathan Israel notes, it was a document that enabled France to set historical precedents in ways America did not. It was a victory for the Democrats of the National Assembly and laid the groundwork for Western European democracy. Israel writes, For the first time in history, equality, individual liberty, the right to equal protection by the state, and freedom of thought and expression were enshrined as basic principles declared inherent in all just and rational societies. The bedrock of democratic modernity was in place. The rights the French adopted for themselves were proclaimed universal rights belonging equally to all of whatever nation, station, faith or ethnicity. Congratulations, Mirabeau. You, along with others like Brousseau, are responsible for the bedrock of modern democracy, according to historian Jonathan Israel. Of course, I do think you should be giving some of the bedrock credit to the British and the Americans, but that takes us down a different rabbit hole which I really don't want to go down. Instead, I want to explore one of the most obvious flaws of the Declaration. A flaw, or perhaps more accurately, an unanswered contradiction that would help to cement the factional nature of the Assembly and have drastic consequences for the course of the Revolution. An unanswered contradiction that takes us to the final great legislative debates of the summer of 1789. Article 3 of the Declaration of the Rights of Man stated the principle of any sovereignty resides essentially in the nation. Article 6, however, proclaimed that the law is the expression of the general will. This led to some obvious questions. If sovereignty resided with the nation, what do you do with the king? who, for the last 
several hundred years has had sovereignty residing with him. Furthermore, if law is the expression of the general will, how do you define that will? Who gets to contribute to that general will? What if the general will is ill-formed or inconsistent? What if the king's will, who in the eyes of some still holds sovereignty, disagrees with that general will? It's these sort of questions which create the last great legislative debates of the summer of 1789. The debates get boiled down to two key questions. How should the legislator be constituted, and what sort of veto should the king possess? Now, in a sense, we shouldn't really be surprised that these issues are going to be, well, controversial. These are issues, after all, which we still haven't agreed upon today, despite hundreds of years of continuous democracy in many Western countries. If I had a dollar for every time someone told me that President Donald Trump didn't win the popular vote in 2016, well, I'd be richer than I am now. But the fact that he didn't win the popular vote is, get ready for it, irrelevant. The American founding fathers decided that mere popularity was a poor way to channel the general will of the people, and invented the electoral college system instead. But it's not like the Americans deviated from the rulebook of democracy creation. Everyone has. There isn't really a standard way of constitutionally setting up a democratic country. This is demonstrated clearly by the fact that so many former British colonies have different democratic structures. The UK, as an example, has an unelected House of Lords, which can only delay a bill, while its former colony, Australia, has an elected Senate, which can permanently block a bill. Furthermore, Australia's neighbour, New Zealand, another former British colony, doesn't have an upper chamber at all. But the differences don't stop at the composition of an upper house. Australia has compulsory voting. You are literally fined if you fail to vote, while New Zealand and the UK do not. The United Kingdom has a first-past-the-post voting system, Australia has a preferential voting system, and New Zealand has a mixed-member proportional voting system. All three have different methods for handling referendums. Where am I going with all of these questionably useful pub trivia facts? Well, in all of these countries, there's debate over changing the structure or number of legislative chambers, how long terms should be, how elections should be conducted, etc, etc, etc. Quite often, these debates are quite feisty. In fact, feisty doesn't sum it up. Tell the right American that the Founding Fathers got it wrong and the Electoral College is now redundant and, well, you're in for one hell of a debate. Trust me, I've done it. So imagine giving the situation France finds itself in. Imagine just how passionate everyone must have been when bread prices were at record highs, the countryside was still smouldering from revolt, Noble conspiracy was the buzzword of the month, the army was in disarray, noble corpses were hanging from lampposts, and the state was essentially bankrupt. If we, in the 21st century, struggle to keep our debates about democracy somewhat civil, it's a minor miracle the French revolutionaries actually managed to do so too. You can imagine just how passionate deputies would have been while fighting over these issues. Now, in this debate, we have roughly two camps. In the red corner were the constitutional monarchists led by Meunier, named everything from the monarchals to the moderates, from the Anglo-maniacs to the party Anglais. The English bloc, as I will call them, unsurprisingly drew inspiration from the English. To them, the English had demonstrated through experience that bicameralism was the best way forward for France. That is to say, they advocated for a legislature consisting of two separate chambers, 
an upper and lower house, or a house of representatives and the Senate in the case of the American situation. Not only had the English shown it had worked, but the Americans had copied them, with only Pennsylvania having a single chamber legislature at the time. In the British model, Meunier and his followers saw the application of the ideas propagated by the philosopher Montesquieu. Specifically, they saw the balance of power between the executive, the legislature, and the judiciary, and it was this separation of powers that guaranteed the Constitution's safety. Only through division of power could the Constitution be empowered. Only through division could a tyrannical legislature be prevented, or the dangers of an incompetent government contained. Thus, for the English bloc, one of the best ways to divide power was to divide the legislative chamber into two chambers. By dividing the legislature into two chambers, and by giving the king a complete and absolute veto, power would be dispersed enough to protect the country from anything in between an incompetent government and a tyrannical one. But, while the English bloc believed division was good, their opponents perceived the opposite. For individuals pursuing the adoption of a much more democratic society based on equality, the idea of a house of lords like that across the channel was abhorrent. The Democrats believed that division was not going to prevent a tyrannical legislature as much as it was going to emasculate a legitimate one. Division was not going to guarantee the revolution's gains as much as it was going to forestall the revolution's progress. For someone like Cies, the legislature represented the general will. It represented true sovereignty. Since it represented true sovereignty, the idea that the legislature could harm itself was incomprehensible. Inspired by the philosopher Rousseau, Cies believed that since the legislature was elected by the people, and since it thus embodied the general will, it could not do anything other than behave in a legitimate manner. Meunier's fears and Montesquieu's teachings were nonsensical because, in the eyes of many Democrats, the organ of the general will could not plausibly harm the people it represented. As a result, for Siez and his allies, such as Dupont and Barnev, the legislature should be one singular chamber to ensure that it was not impeded by unnecessary oversight. Furthermore, since sovereignty laid with the nation and not with the king, at least according to the rights of man, Louis XVI and his successors should be given no veto at all. Diverting our attention momentarily from this specific debate to the impact of the Enlightenment on the French Revolution, it's this position of Siez's and other radical Democrats, one of royal emasculation and legislature empowerment, that leads historian Jonathan Israel to state that years before France became a republic, the French legislator was already being controlled by closet republicans. As the prolonged veto debate shows, all the philosoph revolutionaries were more or less solid republicans from the outset, insisting that the National Assembly possess all the power, authority, responsibility and prestige of government. Israel goes on to argue that Siez and Mirabeau weren't truly Republicans in the sense that they were happy to let the king sit in his chair, so long as he was more or less powerless. But Israel hits the nail on the head in another regard. Everywhere, the fingerprints of a Republican, or at least a crypto-Republican vanguard, can be found in the opening days of the revolution. Siez, Mirabeau, 
Lafayette, Brissot, Condesor, Duport, Barnev, Talleyrand, Le Chapelet, these individuals were all members of this crypto-republican vanguard at various times. This vanguard was instrumental in the outcome of the legislative debates of the summer of 1789. At times, they controlled the revolution's progression. Other times they fought to control it. Other times they fought amongst themselves. But consistently, these individuals can be found throughout the events of 1788 and 1789. And what's something they all had in common? They were all driven by Enlightenment ideas. This is why I personally cannot agree with historians which seriously doubt or outright reject the Enlightenment's initial impacts on the revolution. Historian John Boscher is appropriate in saying that one should avoid assuming that the French Revolution must somehow be thought out in the terms of the Enlightenment simply because it immediately preceded it. I agree that correlation and causation are two very different things that people too often muddle up. But, in agreeing with Israel's views that an enlightened crypto-republican party was both active and influential in 1788 and 1789, I cannot agree with historians such as William Doyle. Doyle states, The French Revolution had not been made by revolutionaries. It would be truer to say that the revolutionaries had been created by the revolution. I would argue the political writings prior to the revolution, and the speed in which Enlightenment ideas were legislated, indicates that there were at least some revolutionaries waiting for the right time to break out of the stomach of the old regime like the xenomorph in the first Alien movie. If the revolution made the revolutionaries, as historian William Doyle suggests, particularly the small clique of individuals leading the charge, well then, it did one hell of a good job. In just four months from the opening of the Estates General, the historic Declaration of the Rights of Man had been declared, feudalism had been essentially abolished, or at least declared abolished, privileges had been thrown out the door, and the Estates General had been completely overhauled. The monarchy had been castrated and a municipal revolution had taken place across the entire country. So much progress could not have been conducted without a group of committed revolutionaries, one influenced by Enlightenment ideas, one merely waiting for the right time to implement them. Siez, Mirabeau, Lafayette, Brissot, Condesseur, Duport, Barnev, Talleyrand, La Chapelet, these were all revolutionary painters waiting for a canvas. Their pre-revolutionary lives had prepared them for the opportunity to illustrate a new society. Contrary to the ideas of historians like William Doyle, these men were not a random cluster of individuals who discovered a canvas in 1789 and figured out how to paint a revolution. Enlightenment ideas may not have been the power which fueled all of the revolution's supporters, but it was the power which filled a handful of the revolution's key leaders in the early years of the French Revolution. Hi, I'm Michael Troy, host of the American Revolution podcast on the Airwave Media Network. This podcast is the origin story of the United States, how we went from colonies ruled by a king to the democratic republic that we enjoy today. The American Revolution podcast tells the story of the revolution from beginning to end starting with the events leading up to the war, including a look at the French and Indian War and pre-war disputes. We then go through the war itself and eventually reach the founding of a new nation based on principles of democratic government. Along the way, there are lots of great stories of both selfishness and sacrifice, 
some unbelievable human achievements, and some all-too-familiar examples of greed, self-dealing, and betrayal. Please subscribe for free to the American Revolution podcast, available on all major podcast platforms. I hope you will join me today on the American Revolution podcast. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode. Where I'd like to tell you a story. On September the 10th, it was Ciesa's painting that won the day. The Assembly voted 849 to 89 in favour of a single chamber, 122 deputies abstaining. The English party's efforts to bring bicameralism to France had failed. But such a large majority makes the vote seem less close than it truly was. There's an element of grey history here. As So often would be the case in this revolution, the moderates and conservatives allowed disunity to sink their cause. In this case, because they couldn't agree on the nature of an upper chamber. Originally, Meunier wanted a hereditary house of lords like that which England possessed. But the very first article of the rights of man declared all men to be free and equal in rights. So to introduce such a house of lords was considered to not really be in the spirit of progressing the revolution. In fact, it was considered to be reversing it. The idea was a non-starter with many members of the assembly who came from the third estate. Members of the rural gentry also balked, figuring that they wouldn't be able to partake in this noble chamber because it was likely to be dominated by the same noble families which had dominated Versailles. When Meunier tried to moderate his proposal for an upper chamber, when a compromise was sought, the nobles of Versailles kicked up a stink instead. Apparently, the idea of sharing the upper chamber with the bourgeoisie and rural gentry was beneath them. It seemed not all men were created equal after all. According to the British observer and future Prime Minister Robert Jenkins, Necker's idea of a house of peers to be made up of honourable and noteworthy citizens of all backgrounds was greeted with disgust by the Versailles nobility. The greater part of the noblesse could not bear the idea that persons of no rank or consideration in the country should be raised to a dignity so important as this and should be put upon a level with themselves. It was this disunity which sunk Meunier's vision of bicameralism in France. It wasn't so much that the idea of a second chamber, of a senate or a house of lords, wasn't popular so much as nobody who liked the idea could agree on its design. As a result, France was to have one singular chamber. The English bloc, however, had greater success on the issue of the veto. While the Democrats pushed for no veto at all, it was clear a majority of the Assembly did want to empower the King to some degree. 
Giving him no veto would essentially be making France a republic in all but name, as the king would merely be a figurehead attached to an all-powerful democratic legislature. As historian Nestor Webster notes, the Cahiers, which were those lists of grievances which were written by the populace as they elected their deputies for the Estates General, the Cahiers made it clear that the people of France trusted the king and wanted him to be involved in the government. The National Assembly's own summary of the contents of the Cahiers stated that royal sanction was needed to enact new laws. Not all deputies were as passionate as Lally Tollendal, an ally of Meunier, who declared he regarded the royal sanction as one of the first ramparts of national liberty. However, many deputies did oppose the idea of sidelining the king completely. But it was not all good news for Meunier and for his English bloc. While Sieres was struggling to find a majority of deputies who would deprive the king of a veto, Meunier was struggling to find a majority of deputies who would back an absolute and unconditional one. Many feared that Louis or his successors could use it indefinitely to block the people's will. To make matters worse, the popular press in Paris was resolutely against the veto, and capable orators in the assembly were disparaging the idea at every opportunity they got. A young, capable deputy by the name of Maximilien Robespierre voiced the view of many pamphleteers in Paris. The skilled orator proclaimed, He who says that one man has the right to oppose himself to the law says that the will of one man is above the will of all. He says that the nation is nothing and that one man is everything. If he adds that this right belongs to him who is endowed with the executive power, He says that the man chosen by the nation to execute the will of the nation has the right to contradict and enchain the will of the nation. A well-spoken but simple argument. If the nation truly possesses sovereignty, and the general will truly creates law, as per the Declaration of the Rights of Man, then there could be no place for the king to possess power which overrules that sovereignty. It's at this deadlock that a new power source within the loose grouping of the Democrats came to the fore, introducing the Triumvirate. Comprised of Adrien Duport, Antoine Barnev and Alexander de Lamette, the influential trio from a variety of backgrounds broke with Siez to breach the impasse. Backed by Necker, the Triumvirate struck a compromise deal with the king. The king would be granted a suspensive veto and in return, the king would approve the abolition of privileges and the declaration of the rights of man, two documents he had yet to lend his royal sanction to, despite being passed weeks before. Meunier, who had been fighting so long for his king, was essentially shafted, thrown under the cart as Louis made a deal with the triumvirate. On the 11th of September, the day after bicameralism was defeated, the assembly voted on the question of the veto. 673 voted in favour of the suspensive veto, with 325 in favour of an absolute one. Still considering any veto the equivalent of a letter de cachet against the general will, Siez led a sizable minority of 143, voting for no veto at all. With the suspensive veto approved, the last great legislative act of the summer of 1789 was complete. Unfortunately for the triumvirate, the king didn't keep his promise. Neither the abolition of privileges nor the declaration of the rights of man would be given royal sanction. Furthermore, Louis managed to get his suspensive veto to behave more like an absolute one. The veto could be overridden only if two subsequent legislatures voted in favour of the same bill. 
With each legislator lasting two years, the king could essentially veto a bill for at least four years. Thus, the triumvirate had managed to give the king a veto, which was officially suspensive, but practically far more absolute. And to make matters worse, the triumvirate had nothing to show for it. Unfortunately for King Louis, his actions had unforeseen consequences. The strengthening of the court's position was interpreted as the harbinger of another counter-revolutionary plot. Louis's refusal to ratify the Declaration of the Rights of Man signalled to some a brewing counter-revolutionary noble conspiracy. As a result, the people of Paris would once again intervene in the revolution. And once again, there would be blood. We have reached the October days. We have arrived at the days of the market women. Thank you for listening to episode 14, Decrees and Declarations. The great fear gave way to great achievements. These great achievements, however, would be followed by a great revolt. The revolt of the market women of Paris. Now before you go, if you have any questions or queries about this episode or others, please do send them through to either greyhistory.com or our Facebook page. Also, as always, if you've enjoyed the show, please, please, please do tell someone who you think would appreciate a podcast which explores the ambiguities of history. I need your help in getting grey history out there to people like you and me who enjoy the fact that history isn't black and white. As always, thank you for listening and have a great day.